what a praise that God's grace is greater than all our sin. Praise the Lord. I want to ask you to go to the Lord with me once again in prayer this morning as we begin to move into the Word of God and ask God to bless us with wisdom from His Word. Father, thank You so much that Your Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that it is the light that arises in the midst of the darkness. Thank You that it is clear, that it is concise. Thank You that it is that which effectually works in the lives of Your people to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Thank You. This morning as we begin this time in our study, I ask that you would give us wisdom, that you, through the work of your Holy Spirit, would open our minds to the understanding of your truth, that we might, to the praise of your goodness and glory, make application of it, and then not only be hearers of it, but doers. And this, Lord, to the praise of your greatness and glory, in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles with me this morning as we continue in our study of contending for the faith. We're drawing the principles of this study from the book of Jude. And we are going to focus and have been focusing last Sunday and Lord willing today and likely next Sunday as well on verses. 22 and 23. Verse 22, And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Powerful verses. Within the context of Jude, they fall within that perspective or that subject of what we are due to do with reference to those in particular that are, are themselves influenced by false doctrine. This is part of contending for the faith. Whenever Jude started this command out back in the earlier part of the text in verses 3 and 4, that was the command, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And the reason for that, recall, there were multiple ones, but one in particular is that there had certain persons had crept into the, the visible church and they had crept in unnoticed and they had brought with them false doctrine. And that false doctrine was responsible for turning the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ into a license for immorality. A license for, as the text says, licentiousness. And basically, the idea there is not just pertaining to what we would think of as immorality today, just in the sense of immoral acts, but basically anything that would be contrary to the moral standard of God's truth. And very specifically, it has to do with anything that grace would be twisted to to detour from the Christian being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. In other words, instead of pursuing holiness, grace becomes a means of just living out your sinful life sinfully. Without the pursuit of holiness, without an exercise of discipline in one's life, to seek the things of God and to put first the kingdom of Jesus Christ in their everyday living, their everyday life. Then he addressed the judgment, the inevitable judgment of these individuals. And one of the reasons why Jude did that, and it's important for God's people to know this as they contend for the faith, and that is that the purveyors of false doctrine, while on this earth they may look like they are gaining success, but in the end they lose. They lose. As a matter of fact, I'll put it more bluntly, they are losers. They lose. 
The devil is certainly, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, the ruler of this world presently. The text there refers to him as the God of this world. But in the end, he loses. He loses. So, as you earnestly contend for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, Christians, we are on the right side. The side that in the end wins, that triumphs. It may not look like it from the worldly perspective from this world, but by faith we understand the end result. The end result. And then he went on, as you'll recall in this text and context, he said in verse 20 and 21 that this is what you as Christians are to do with reference to yourselves as you contend for the faith. And the very first instruction that he gave there was that we are to be building up ourselves in our most holy faith. Christianity is never to be hypocritical. It's never to be false. It's never to be those who go out and tell others to straighten up and repent, and we haven't, and we are not. We must be about building up ourselves in our most holy faith. We looked at that as constructing, and that's literally what the Greek word that's used in translated building there means, constructing. We must be about constructing ourselves in our most holy faith. Then we need to be conversing in the Holy Spirit. That is, our prayers need to be in line with the truth of God. Then he goes on and he says, as you see in the text there, look at verse 21, keep or keeping is the Greek, yourselves in the love of God. And we spend some time looking at what the love of God is. And the idea of it is in this context that we are guarding ourselves and in particular preserving ourselves knowing that God loves His people. And I will tell you, we don't have time this morning to go back and look at it, but, and sadly so, and because of false doctrine, one of the most corrupted places with reference to what the love of God means today is not necessarily out in the world, but is really found, the corrupted version, the most corrupted aspects of it, is found right in the walls of evangelicalism today. And because of that, we have forgotten the power and the significance of God's love specifically for His people. And that is to be something that preserves us. Paul put it this way in Romans. He asked a simple question, and he did it in the context of addressing the love of God. He said, if God be for us, then who can be against us? What a praise that is. What a great blessing it is. Then he goes on, and you can see there he says, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. We are to keep looking for Christ. We are to keep looking for Him. The idea here is expectantly we are to be looking for Him. And so after he addressed that, now he's moved into the section where he begins to address individuals who are, are influenced by false doctrine. You remember last week we spent some time looking back in this context to see the types of people that are in view here. There are Christians certainly in view here, and there are uh, false teachers in view in this particular book, and there are mockers that are in view, part of the result of the false teachers. And then there is a third group. A third group is really a mixture of the two, and that is those who are, are influenced by false doctrine. Their influence that consists of both believers and non-believers, those who are Christians 
and those who are not Christians. And this morning, we're going to take a look at kind of a parenthetical note that is here. It's not necessarily explicit, but you can see it in the text. And we'll spend our time looking at that. And next week, we'll begin to look, as the Lord wills, at how we respond specifically to these individuals that are mentioned here. But you remember that there are, in verse 22, as far as the text is concerned, those who doubt. Look at it again with me. And have mercy on some who are doubting. The second group that is mentioned here in this context is those who are in the fire. Notice verse 23. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. Clearly, these are uh, a different group. He says, and save others, snatching them out of the fire. And then the third group here, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. And, and this is referring to those in particular who have been, uh, they're at the, 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 the result of the false doctrine, caught up in it, and they are in the sin, in sin, whatever that particular false doctrine was leading to. Now, keep in mind that all three of these are sin, and we'll understand that as we move on in the text. But what I want us to do this morning is, as I mentioned, look at kind of a parenthetical uh, situation going on here. As you look at that text, those who doubt, and then the next one, those who are in the fire, and um, uh, those who are in the fire, and those who are in the sin. There seems to be a progression that's taking place. There is the doubt, and then from doubt there comes peril, and that's referencing the fire, and then sin. And what I want us to see is this progression as we move through the text this morning. Now, let me say this, and I want to really repeat something we spoke of on Wednesday evening. Whenever we look at all of these verses, and we're going to be seeing several of them this morning, the point of that, the purpose of that, is not to just state other verses, but it's to give you not only the immediate context, but the context of the subject in Scripture as a whole. So that whenever you go home, you don't need me. All you need is the Bible. You can take the Word of God. You're a Christian. God's Holy Spirit indwells you if you're a believer. And His Holy Spirit opens your mind so that you can understand the preacher, so that you can understand God's Word. Because at the end of the day, it's you and God. It's you and God. It's not you and me and God. It's not you and another preacher and God. It's not you and the Sunday school teacher or so on and so forth and all of that. It's you and it's God. And inevitably, every single one of us in this room right now, every single individual in the world, whether they believe it or not, it doesn't matter, will stand before God. We are all headed that direction. Lost and saved alike. Some for judgment, some for life eternal. But we're all headed to God. And there is no better way to prepare for that encounter than reading His Word to us. That's the best place. Now, that doesn't negate listening to the preacher. God has put preachers and teachers in place for his purpose for teaching, for instructing, but that inevitably the learning 
is in your hands as you study his word. So I say all that to say, if you miss some of these verses, all of these messages are recorded. You can go back online at the website and look at those and listen to them and get those verses. And you, as the Bereans did, search the scripture to see whether or not those things are true. Because at the end, remember, it's you and it's God. Well, I want us before we move really even into these specific verses and looking at this progression of what I'm going to refer to as the progression of false doctrine, where it leads first to doubt and from doubt to peril and from peril then to sin. I want us to back up into another text of Scripture. And so I'm going to ask you to do that with me to Galatians. Galatians. And here's why we're coming to Galatians with reference to what we're studying here in Jude. Jude is looking at a process, the process where a person doubts, a process then because they have doubted, peril comes and they have an incorrect response in it. And then the next place is sin. The next place is being caught up in the sin of that false doctrine. But whenever we come to Galatians, which is also dealing with aspects of false doctrine, what we see in the book of Galatians is the ultimate objective in the life of the believer of false doctrine. The ultimate objective. As Paul wrote to the churches, and there were several of them in the area of Galatia, and he began this letter, by the way, in verse 2, to the churches of Galatia. False doctrine had crept into those churches. And one of the incredible things that we can see through this epistle to the Galatians is the effects of false doctrine on their lives as Paul mentioned it throughout this book. And ultimately, and in particular in the life of the Christian, the thrust of false doctrine is to alienate you. It is to alienate you. Now, the Christian positionally is always going to be a Christian. That's an aspect of the sovereign grace of God. You can never lose your salvation. Your position in Christ will never change. Jesus said that he gave his life for the sheep, and all those who are sheep that belong to him will believe. And he said in John 6 that he will raise them up on the last day. Period. Yes, it is a biblical fact that once a person is genuinely saved, they are always saved. But in the meantime, Satan works overtime to alienate them. And you can see that in this, this epistle. So we're going to see the process whenever we look to Jude, but we're going to back up here and see the objective. So you'll know kind of like the end before you get to the process. You'll know where it's headed. Now the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 6 that the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. So it should always be the objective of the church over and above all things to be heralders of the truth of God. Because it's the truth that sets us free, right? Jesus put it this way, as you are aware, in John chapter 8, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed? You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Praise the Lord. What will false doctrine do? Well, first of all, false doctrine has the intent of alienating you 
from God. Alienating you from God. If you're a Christian, that's the, the thrust and the intent of false doctrine. It is to come into your life and to alienate you from every member of the Godhead. There are multitudes of ways that it does that. We're not even going to go into that. But we'll see that that's what was happening right here at the churches of Galatia. They were being alienated from the members of the Godhead. Take a look at the text. I'll give you the verses in each one of these, and we'll move through it quickly, because again, we want to get back over to Jude. But first of all, notice in verse 6 of chapter 1, I am amazed that you are so quickly, notice this, deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. This is alienation here from the Father. Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, and he says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you. That's alienation from the Father. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 4 of Galatia. Chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 4. You have been, he says, severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. Notice, alienation here from Christ. You've been severed from Christ. False doctrine is no little thing to compromise with, however large it is or small it may be. Ultimately, it always has the same objective, to alienate you as a believer if you're a Christian from God. Paul made it clear as he spoke here to the churches of Galatia. How about the Holy Spirit? Take a look with me, if you will, to chapter 3 of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. And move down into the text to verse 3. Are you so foolish, he said to the churches of Galatia, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, you started out in the Holy Spirit. Have you now left Him to be perfected by the work of the flesh? Look at chapter 5 of Galatians and down there to verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. So first of all, the goal of any false doctrine is to alienate you from the persons of the Godhead. Now, we live in an evangelical world today that wants us all to just get along with one another. And we need to pursue peace with all men. And especially we need to pursue peace with all within the body of believers. But that doesn't mean we compromise truth. Because we know what it does when we do. It alienates us from God. It alienates us not only from the persons of the Godhead, but really false doctrine also alienates us from the very principles of the gospel. It alienates us from the principles of the gospel itself. Take a look in this book with me, first of all, to chapter 3, verse 2. It alienates us from faith. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did your Christian life start by keeping the commands or by believing? The answer is faith by believing. False doctrine seeks to alienate us from grace itself. From grace itself. Chapter 5. Look there with me. 2 verse 4. We read this a moment ago. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. 
Now, that doesn't mean that they have lost their salvation. But what it means is they have fallen from the ways of grace. And now they're trying to be justified and keep their salvation by works. And right there, while you're in chapter 5, notice verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. False doctrine separates you from liberty and enslaves you. It separates from liberty and it enslaves the believer. So it alienates us from liberty. Again, in chapter 5, move down in the text to verse 7. And it alienates us, obviously, from truth. Verse 7 says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And I love that little word, obeying, there. Because it encompasses not only being a hearer and a knower, but a doer. A doer. So false doctrine alienates us from the persons of the Godhead. It alienates us from the principles of grace. And it actually alienates us also from the people of God. It separates us from the people of God. The whole idea is to get you away from anything that has anything to do with God. The principles of biblical doctrine and the people of God. You see, because if you, if, you, if you believe the false doctrine, inevitably, it's got to get you away from the people that will promote sound doctrine. Take a look in the text with me. Chapter 4, verse 16. Notice, it separates us from those who teach the gospel. Paul, he says, so have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? He's asking that churches, the churches there that he had preached at and had taken the word to, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And the answer to the question is, to some extent, yes, because they can't hold the false doctrine that Paul is denouncing, and denouncing hard, as he did there in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, that if a person is preaching another Christ, that person is to be damned. It's kind of hard to listen to that whenever you're believing the doctrine of the guy that's preaching another Christ, right? Most of us got a common enough sense, I hope, that if we know someone's going to hell, we're not going to sit there and believe every word that they say. We're going to Move on. It also separates God's people from the people in general who believe and practice the truth. Look over with me to chapter 5. In chapter 5, move down once again with me, and this time to verse 13. He says, You were called to freedom, Brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things you are, that you please. And then he goes on to being led by the Spirit. But you can see what was happening there. False doctrine had came, come in, and they'd begun to walk in the flesh not the Spirit, and then the consequence of that is biting and devouring one another. False doctrine for the Christian is not going to keep you out of heaven. It won't do that. Jesus made this statement in John chapter 10. He said, My sheep hear my voice, 
I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. That's pretty simple. That's why we need to preach only the gospel, right? Because those who are Christ's sheep, they'll hear his voice. They're going to hear it. They will respond. He knows them, and they follow him. Paul, as he wrote to the church at Corinth, he said that it is necessary that there is divisions or heresy among you so that those who are approved may be made manifest. God will use false doctrine, not that we are to commend it or put up with it or, or indulge ourselves with it, but he uses it because what he does with it, he will raise up individuals that will stand against us. For instance, the Apostle Paul, in this case with the churches of Galatia. And those individuals will communicate the truth. God's sheep will hear them because it is the truth that their ears should be tuned to and they will follow him. But it can influence your life while you're here as a Christian. And the method that it uses is what we'll look at this morning. So go back with me, if you will, to the book of Jude. The first is, and again, this is kind of a parenthetical note here, and we'll pick up next week on what we are to do and how as Christians we are to respond to those who are in these groups. But notice with me the first one is that of doubting. Some who are doubting. Some who are doubting. To doubt God's word, the idea of this word actually in the Greek literally means to dispute. To dispute. These are individuals that they have heard false doctrine. They're not well grounded. And what that does is it causes you to differentiate in a negative sense between God's truth and falsehood and not know which direction to go. You become a doubter. And the wrestling match has to do very succinctly with the flesh that's in the person themselves. As a matter of fact, as you look at this text, look with me to verse 10. He's describing the false teachers here. And he says of them, But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. The false teachers live by instinct. Not the Spirit, not truth, but, the, but their own instincts. They live according to their own lusts. Look down in the text of verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. And notice that, caring for themselves. They are clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. Verse 16, and very particularly, and specifically, verses 16 and 18. Notice this closely. These are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. Notice that phrase, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Again in verse 18, that they were saying to you, that is the warning of the apostles, in the last time there will be mockers, and notice what the mockers will be doing. They will be following after their own ungodly lusts. They promote a doctrine that appeals to the flesh. And once that flesh gets excited, it becomes difficult and a raging war to see the truth. And you begin to doubt it. Paul put it to the Galatians this way, walk by the Spirit. That doesn't mean some kind of 
space, spiritual, supernatural kind of thing that happens and you walk through with your nose in the air and you feel a certain way. It simply means this. Walk by the truth. Because the Holy Spirit, according to John 14, John 15, and John 16, is the spirit of truth. And whenever you are told to pray in the Spirit, and you are told in Scripture, we are told to walk in the Spirit, it's an exhortation to walk in line with the truth of the Word of God. Paul said, if you walk by the Spirit, you'll not carry out the deeds of the flesh. But if you are not walking by the Spirit in accord with the truth, and that flesh is excited and it's being fed, then doubt arises. Whenever Peter wrote on the very same subject as Jude did with regard to false teachers, notice what he said. Turn to 2 Peter with me quickly. 2 Peter chapter 2. He's talking here about false teachers in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, that is in the Old Testament, just as there will also be false teachers among you in the New Testament period, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And notice what he said in verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. The idea of sensuality here is that in their teaching they are appealing to the flesh, to the natural man, to the instinctive nature of the human being. Not to the new nature, not to the indwelling Holy Spirit, but to the flesh. Look in the text to verse 10. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. God here in this context is talking about judging these false teachers, just as Jude did. And one of the things he says that is the characteristic of these individuals, and it is the characteristic of their teaching, is that they indulge the flesh. Down in the text to verse 18. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, notice this, they entice by fleshly desires. They're appealing to the flesh. They promise things like health and wealth and your best life now. Now I'll tell you, there's not a human being alive that I've ever been aware of that does not like the idea of having your best life now. That appeals to the flesh. Unless, of course, you're a, spirit, uh, a, a Christian led by the Spirit of God, and you know there is no way you're getting your best life now, because your best life is in heaven. And it's reserved there, incorruptible, undefiled, and it will not fade away, according to Peter, according to God. Look at verse 19. Promising them what? Freedom. While they themselves are slaves of corruption. False doctrine as it feeds the flesh causes doubt. And once doc or false doctrine excites the flesh of those whose minds are not informed by the word of God, by the clarity of his truth, Doubt starts arising. Doubt arises. And once doubt arises, the foundation is laid. You see, doubt is the antithesis of faith. It's Questioning God's word. I love, again, in Acts, where the Bible tells us that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they, after the hearing of the word of God preached by the Apostle Paul, searched the scriptures to see whether or not those things were, were true. They weren't doubting Paul's word. They wanted to find out, is that true? So they looked where? Not in, but 
to God's Word, out to His Word. And as they compared them, they saw the truth and they believed. It's no wonder Jude began this epistle exhorting Christians to earnestly contend for the faith. And then as he moved into how you are to do that, he started with building yourselves up on your most holy faith. You take in the Word. You solidify your mind with it. No wonder the Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, speaking even of his own self, he said, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. The moment you fail to do that, doubt's there. Because if we are not taking everything captive, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, the first step of false doctrine is to create doubt with regard to God's truth there. Next, and by the way, obviously you can see that it is indeed a spiritual battle that is in view here. Next, peril. Peril. Save others, the text says, snatching them out of the fire. It is through the Word of God that the Christian has everything that pertains to life and godliness. That's right here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Since the Word of God serves as the compass in the life of the believer, and it does, it does, Psalm 119 says that the Word of God is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is our compass in this life. It is the basis by which we navigate this Christian life in the lost world. If you begin to doubt God's Word, that inevitably leads to course changes. In other words, if you doubt the compass, you will take the wrong course. It's just the natural thing to do. Once you start doubting the compass, you get on the wrong course. And once you get on the wrong course, you become subject to the common perils in this life. As a matter of fact, and you can write this proverb down, Proverbs chapter 2, the entire chapter, deals with just this very thing. For the sake of time, we won't go and look at it. I'd love to and just go right through it. It'd be like if we could just get one long message for a few hours and just keep it, but do that online. Then read your Bible, Proverbs 2. Proverbs 2 talks about in the beginning of the text, Seeking God's Word, treasuring His Word as if it were a hidden treasure in your life. And then it talks about what happens whenever you do that. It says specifically in Proverbs 2.10, Then you will discern righteousness, justice, and every good course. As the text moves on, it talks about being saved from evil, the own evil in your heart, in your flesh. It talks about being saved from the course of evil men and evil women. So what a praise and a blessing. Once that doubt sets in, though, and you change course, you become subject to various perils. We're all going to experience peril in this life. Christians, I believe, in many instances, more than non-Christians in some respects. But we're all going to sub be subject to them. We're in a cursed world, a fallen world. It's a world that's, that's in pain, as Romans 8 describes it. It's, it's convulsing. 
trials, troubles come. And whenever they come, we experience them. We need direction. And that direction for the Christian is in the Word of God. As I mentioned earlier in the prayer, Psalm 112, the Bible says, Light arises in the darkness for the upright. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. I love that verse because that's where I need the light, right? In the darkness. The world's waiting on the light at the end of the tunnel. That ain't going to do you any good. You need light where you're at, and that comes from the Word of God. And then finally this morning, I want us to briefly look at the last one. Sin. Then... There's sin. He says, on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. For the believer, trials try our faith. The trying of your faith, James writes and says, worketh patience. And he says, let patience have its perfect work, that you may be entire and complete, lacking nothing. And then he goes on in James chapter 1, and he says there that if, if we lack wisdom in the midst of a trial, we are to pray. Let him ask of God, verse 5 says, who gives to all men liberally. And he doesn't hold back. And he said, but let him ask in faith, not wavering, not doubting, because the man who wavers shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. And then, as you know, as the text goes on, then enters in James, in the midst of the trial, temptation to sin. Temptation to sin. Doubt, and then trial, and then in that trial, the devil hits you, appealing to the flesh to lead you into sin. That's the progression of it. Now, all of it's sin. To doubt God is sin. But you can see that as false doctrine works, creating doubt, changing your course, leading to peril, and then in peril, succumbing to sin. This phrase, on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh, indirectly refers to those whose lives are corrupted by sin. The progression illustrated in verses 22 and 23, it works similar to this. Their fertile flesh is infused with false doctrine in the context of a mind that's not been informed by the Word of God. Doubt of God's Word begins to rise. And it leads to a course change, which results in trials. Then comes temptation to sin, and the defilement of those led astray. And they began to act according to the impulses of their flesh, and their garments become polluted. We're charged by Christ to keep our garments spotless. We'll pick up with this one next week. We're out of time this morning. This is a powerful text of Scripture. This morning, I would give you this exhortation. If you believe that your mind is influenced by false doctrine, get to the truth. Start comparing Scripture with Scripture. God has spoken clearly in His Word. Clear enough, He holds you and me accountable to it. I know we live in a day and an age where people are saying, well, that's difficult to understand. Well, there are things in Scripture that are difficult to understand. Peter said that about Paul's writing. He said that some of the things Paul wrote are difficult to understand. You can read that in 2 Peter chapter 3. But you need to understand something very important. The difficulty is not within the Word of God. It's in our minds. It's in our minds. That's where the difficulty is. If I were to say to you this morning, there's going to be a, 
a test on calculus at the end of the service. I, for one, would raise my hand and I would say, I ain't even going to take it. I can tell you right now, I'm going to fail. Because that subject is difficult. Now, is there a problem in the subject? No. Calculus is a science. It's set. The difficulty's here, right? It's not down there. It's not in calculus. The difficulty isn't in the Word of God. It's in our minds. But we can, as Christians, through study of the Word, come to the truth, and we will reach the truth. You can consult with counselors that are sound in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 5 and 4 actually uh, speak to that. But ultimately, they direct you back to the truth, and you can compare Scripture with Scripture. As Jude put it, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Be sound in your judgment. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you that your people have not been left in darkness. We have not been left in a cursed earth without knowing the direction we are to take but you have blessed us with your word. Your word that is a lamp to our feet and light to our path. Your word that effectually works in the lives of those who believe. Your word that is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Cause us to take it in, Lord. To live on every word that proceeds out of your mouth. To your praise and glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.